Good morning and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I work in the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and I edit a, a website called humanprogress.org. Uh, today I would like to welcome you to our second forum on the effects of Bolshevik Revolution on the world today. Our first panel, which took place on Monday, focused on terror and propaganda as means of achieving the desired objectives of communist governments. Our third and last panel, which will take place on November 28th, will look at Marxism and political correctness on America's campuses. But today we are going to be looking at the impact of the communist takeover in Russia on the size and scope of the state in the West. Before the outbreak of World War I, government spending as a share of the gross domestic product in the developed world averaged roughly 13%, and the role of public officials in the lives of the citizenry was restricted to a few core functions, including justice and national defense. At the dawn of the 21st century, average government spending amongst rich countries stood at 44% of GDP, and the scope of government has grown immensely. Was this a natural evolution or one spurned, uh, spurred uh, by the West's competition with the East? To help us understand this question, I'm happy to welcome to the Cato Institute a very distinguished panel. Our first speaker is Vito Tanzi. Vito was born in Italy. He has received degrees in economics from Harvard University and George Washington University. In 1960, between 1967 and 74, he was professor of economics at the American University where he taught graduate courses in public finance and macroeconomics. In 1974, he joined the International Monetary Fund as uh, head of tax policy division, and in 1981, he became director of the fund's fiscal affairs department, a position which he held until the end of 2000. Between 2001 and 2003, he served in the Italian government at the ministerial level as uh, undersecretary for finance and economy. Between 1994, he was president of the International Institute of Public Finance. He's been awarded honorary degree, degrees from five universities. He has received various prizes. And an economic effect, the Tanzi effect, was named after him. In addition to this general work in macroeconomics and public finance, he has contributed to economic literature in the economics of corruption, tax evasion, and the underground economy. His, re his recent work has been largely focused on the economic role of the state, uh, on which he has published two books uh, by Cambridge University Press, including a new book on that topic, Termites and the State, How Complexity Leads to Inequality, which will be published shortly, and also The Ecology of Taxation, Factors that Determine the Demand and Supply of Taxes, which will soon be published by Edward Elgar. Uh, he's the author of hundreds of papers, many of them which have been published in top economics journals, and two dozen books which he either wrote or edited. With that, uh, Vito, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Well, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a great pleasure to be here. I've been associated with the Cato uh, for quite a few years. In fact, I published a couple articles in your journal, and I attended conferences uh, in the past. And uh, uh, the topic uh, of today's uh, uh, discussion is very, very interesting, you know, not only because it's 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, 
but because of the, the discussion, the, the issue about the role of the state has continued to be very important and very hot topic. Uh, I have uh, I've been very much interested in the topic of the growth of, of public spending and the growth of the role of the state. As mentioned, I, I already have, I published two books in, uh, with Cambridge University Press. One was co-authored with the, the person who is now the economic advisor to, to Schobel in, uh, in Germany. And, uh, and I have a forthcoming book that I'm quite excited about. I think it's maybe the most important of my books that would be published before the end of the year by Cambridge. Uh, we're discussing issues of complexity in the role of the state, inequality, and, and so forth. But uh, the topic of today, when I was asked to, to think about the impact of the Bolshevik Revolution on, uh, on public spending, and I found the topic quite fascinating because I was very much interested in, again, how the, the spending had grown over, over the years and, and why it had reached this very high level that in some countries, such as France, Denmark, Finland, is now 50, 55% of GDP. On the other hand, there are still countries like Singapore or China, for that matter, or Korea, or Hong Kong or Taiwan, that spend somewhere between 20 and 25% of GDP. I also, in my writing, I came to the conclusion that maybe a level of public spending of somewhere between 30 and 35% was the more or less should allow to all government to do whatever they want to achieve, to do it well. You know, if you go beyond 35%, then complexity comes and then it's no longer clear that uh, by spending more, you are achieving whatever you want to, to achieve. So this has been uh, one of the themes. You know, of course, you know, there are several countries that are in that range of 30 to 35%. For example, Switzerland is one of them. Australia is another one of them. New Zealand is one of them. Ireland is one of them. And to some extent, the United States is not very far from that. And, uh, and so, on the, other, on the other hand, you know, you ask if a country goes from 30 to 50 or 55 percent, what are they buying with extra money? So this is an interesting topic. But this, anyway, is not the topic of today. And the topic of today is the impact of the Bolshevik Revolution. I wrote a little book on half of it on Russia, which dealt mainly with the relationship between the IMF and Russia in the 90s. I was very much involved. In, with the technical assistance and so forth. It was fascinating. Uh, I, at the time, I was also involved in the relationship with the IMF and China and comparing the two countries. You know, there's some comparison in the book, the reaction of the country to, to, to this, to the advice that they were getting was fascinating. But uh, uh, again, I go back to the Bolshevik Revolution. The main, uh, but maybe I should, uh, give a few, few more data. If you go back to the 19th century, you find, uh, or even earlier, Benjamin Franklin, by the way, wrote a, a little book, which uh, the, it was called the, the Way to Wealth, I think. It's a very tiny book in which he said that 10% of GDP was the optimal level of taxation. And uh, there was a, a, a very famous, at the time, French economist called Leroy Beaulieu, uh, who wrote a two volumes, a really encyclopedic 
view of what was going on in the world around 1880, in which he said, well, that a level of taxation of 5 to 7% is more or less right. Between 5 and 12% becomes heavy, but still bearable. Beyond 12%, he said, clearly, this would damage the economy and so forth. This was much before Laffer curves and, and so forth. So that, uh, but uh, by, the, by the beginning of the, in, you know, the, 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 that level of spending, a level of spending around 10, 12% of GDP remained until before the, the Second World War, the First World War. Then it went up, not very fast, you know, in 19... For 30, for example, the U.S. was still spending 10% of GDP. That was the total spending of the country. And uh, uh, Sweden, which is the epitome today of uh, welfare state, at the time in 1940 was spending 15% of GDP. So these were much lower level. By the time we get after the Second World War, then the level of spending keeps going up very fast for about 30 years. Then it slows down. And then in more recent years, it has not change all, all that much. So that, uh, but uh, going back to the, the theme of the, the book, of the conference, my conclusion will be that the Bolshevik revolution had a marginal impact, but not all that great of an impact. At the same time, the, the thinking that had brought about the Bolshevik revolution, the socialist thinking and so forth, had a far more impact. And I want to give you some uh, some points why I believe this. You know, in other words, the, to the question whether there was a cause and effect relationship between the, the Bolshevik revolution and the growth of public spending, my answer would be maybe, but not all that important. Uh, I will argue that there were, was an effect, that if there was an effect for coming from the Bolshevik revolution, it was likely to have been minor or insignificant. And the reasons are several. First, there was the impact on public spending that came from two world wars. Now, this is a very important. There was an important book by Peacock and Weissman, who were very important economists 50 years ago, 40 years ago, a public choice economist. They wrote this book, which is a classic in public financial literature, which said that really wars are the main factor contributing to the growth of spending. You know, when you have a war, countries have to raise the level of taxation. Once they know how to collect more taxes, they stay with that level. And, uh, and this, in fact, this was one of the reasons we should not forget that there were two world war, and until the first world war, the level of spending was very low. After the second world war, the level of spending went very much up. In fact, you know, there were discussions between Churchill, for example, and Roosevelt uh, at the time, saying, well, you know, all this money that we are spending for the war, why don't we use it for uh, uh, making, uh, improving the, the standard of living of the people? No, so, so this was the first. Second, before the Bolshevik Revolution, the social and economic situation had been changing rapidly. You know, the, the, the Industrial Revolution had had much of an impact. There was strong pressure for greater government involvement in the economy. The socialism had been a major force during much of the 19th century. There had been a, a various attempts to establish communes, for example, in Paris in 1930, in 1948, and in, in 1870s. So well before the Bolshevik Revolution, there were already this strong pressure. 
in, uh, in, 19, uh, in 1900, the Socialist Party was the largest party in, in Germany and was also a very large party in, party in France, Italy, and Austria. So socialist movement were very, very active and so forth. Uh, the influence of Marx had been growing for much of the 19th century. And, and the, uh, a British historian, a very famous British historian, who published a major book, a book of seven, 800 pages, called The Age of Reform. And The Age of Reform, the dealing mainly with the UK, uh, referred to the period between 1815 and 1870. So it's not, we should not think that the reform uh, is, was something really that started with the Bolshevik revolution, we had been going on. But there was a difference, you know. The reform was reforming in the, in the condition of women, in condition of workers, in condition of children. No, this was the reform that uh, Woodward was talking about. We're not uh, uh, talking in terms of uh, increased spending, you know. We're reforms connected between workers and employers. The state was, was involved, but, but not through spending, more, more through some regulation. Uh, I, also in that period, Adolf Wagner, who was a very famous uh, uh, German economist, had uh, promoted the Wagner's law, but had also recommended, was recommending that the growth of spending was important and uh, the government should play some role in redistributing income. And uh, Wagner, by the way, in that period, in the period between 1880 and 1900 or so, was the most famous economist in Europe, far more famous than Keynes. No, uh, I'm sorry, Keynes had not, not, not appeared. I mean, far more famous than Adam Smith. No, Adam Smith was not paid much, all that much attention, but Wagner was. And Bismarck, of course, you know, introduced the welfare reform for that for the first time, almost for the first time. There were some minor exceptions in Norway and in, in the Holland and also in Venice that at some point had introduced specific government protection, pension for particular workers like miners and in the case of Venice for sailors, you know, but were very, very marginal, very unimportant. But Wagner, but Bismarck, was, the, was real, the Bismarck reform, were the first time that the state actively uh, got involved with, with the spending, you know. And uh, of course, Wagner's, uh, Bismarck's uh, uh, reform became very, very popular in Europe. And uh, by, by the way, the Bismarck had to, in order to introduce this reform, had to, to introduce uh, protective tariffs. So, so this was a bargain that he made with the, with employers, no, that he, I give you protection, but you give some, some protection to the workers, mainly that were, were very, very, really, at the time, for, to give you an idea of how unimportant in terms of spending they were, the, at the time when the life expectancy was 45, in order to get a pension, you had to reach 65, you know? And the pension was a very, very, you know, the, the contribution of the government was very, very low. Only the, the employer were involved. Uh, the, the reform that, uh, by the way, up to that time, mo most of the reform that had taken place were directed to workers, not to, to citizens. 
And this is a very important distinction. You know, the, the Industrial Revolution was having a very serious impact on, on workers. But the idea that the government should be involved with the citizen per se was still relatively new. So, so this distinction is very important. Also, at, the, at that time, if you look at the, the literature in around 1900 and a little bit later, the, the government started creating what was called a bureaucratic state. And this is a very important point which has not attracted much attention. That, uh, you know, if you wanted to play a larger role with public spending and with the government policy, you need the bureaucrats, you need to train the bureaucrats. And Woodwork, for example, this historian that I mentioned earlier that had written this enormous book that had several editions, he said, well, you know, laissez-faire could have, was, was uh, existed because the government they did, not, did not have the personnel to introduce policy. Even if the government had wanted to have a different philosophy, they could not have, uh, you would not have been able to do it because, uh, because the, they did not have the personnel. And Fogel, you know, Fogel was a Nobel Prize in economics from the University of Chicago. It's a very interesting chapter in his book that uh, the, the chapter was that uh, when uh, Roosevelt came into power, in, in uh, Washington, there were only, at the most, 100 economists in the government. And most of these were clerk, you know, statistical clerk. By the, by the time he had written the book in 2000, there were 20,000 economists working for the government. So that, uh, you know, the point is that you, 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 welfare, the welfare, the less affair, may be forced on you if you don't have the personnel to, to introduce a policy. And, uh, and that, that, but the, by the 1900, various countries, Max Weber had written a lot about this, about the, the role of uh, public employees, you know, of the, of the well-educated uh, uh, employee that can regulate the state. So, so this was also an important point. In, uh, by the way, in 1891, there had been a World Congress of Workers in Berlin, already a big congress, which was important. And in, in that same period, the Pope Lion, Lion, Leon XIII had uh, put out this encyclical called Rerum Novarum, which is a very, very important document, worth reading. You know, even the, in this encyclical, the Pope made the following uh, point, that uh, pro property is not a theft. No, there is a right to property, and definitely, you know, uh, he justified the property. However, he said that the, 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 there is a right to property, and there is a, a use of property. And he made an important distinction that you can have all the property in the world, but you, have to, you are socially responsible for it. So some of the argument that the greed is good and so forth definitely would have been rejected by the Pope. You know? and, uh, and the Pope made the point, made a, made a strong pitch for charity, for, for people who are rich, for using some of their wealth. Was a, of course, being a Catholic, this was one way to heaven. You know, if, uh, so so this, all this had... Uh, we're already give you an idea that things were changing before the, all this thing happened before the Bolshevik Revolution. A, a couple more points, you know. One is that the Gini coefficient, the famous Gini coefficient, was developed by an Italian statistician, came in, in, in 1912, also before the Gini coefficient. Obviously, income distribution had become an issue by that time. And another big uh, 
point, the, the income tax in the US was introduced in 1913 also before the Bolshevik Revolution. By the way, by the, 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 the First World War, the marginal tax rate in the income tax had gone to 65%. You know, at the beginning was very, very low, was between 1% and 6% or, or some, some, something like this. And only very, very few people paid the tax. By the, by the middle of the war, the marginal tax rate had been pushed up because the war was, was fought mainly well, you know, you needed much more uh, revenue, but also the public debt at the time went up. So when the, when the Bolshevik Revolution came, you know, they was uh, obviously fascinating with it. You know, all these socialists, which were very important in many countries, I mentioned Germany, Italy, France, etc. They thought that they were seeing a path to the future, and several of them went to visit uh, Russia, at the time. And uh, I must say, they were taken for well-orchestrated visits to communal farms and to factories. And, uh, but uh, some of them were fooled, of your, there were also some Americans. If you look at Schlesinger's book, you, you find a few who had gone to Russia at the time I met with the Lenin and so forth. But not all of them were, were fooled, you know. And to give you a couple uh, references, was a very famous uh, journalist at the time, French journalist, was world famous. His name was uh, Albert Londres that uh, visited Russia in, in around 1920, and he wrote a skating book called The, the, the Russia of, uh, what, what was it? In the Russia of the Soviet. And there is a description of this book in my little book on Russia. You will find it uh, quite entertaining, you know, some of his uh, discussion with the Minister of Finance and the, uh, you know, somebody, he, tell, he, was, he asked the Minister of Finance, he said, well, if I need a hat, in this, uh, in this country, because they want to abolish money. Uh, what, what, uh, how do I get that? Well, he said, well, it's simple. You go to this office, tell them that you need a hat. If you convince them, they give you a certificate. And with this certificate, you go to the, to the hat fa factory, and they will give you the, the hat. And the, 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 the guy says, well, if I need to go abroad, what do I do? I said, why would you want to go abroad? And he said, well, for whatever reason. He said, well, in the Soviet, you know, in the Russia of the Soviet, nobody would want to go abroad, you know. So but this gives you some idea. By the way, one last thing that I want to mention, and then I will, I will really stop because I don't want to take too much time, is that Keynes himself visited Russia. It was, I don't know, 1924 or 25, I don't remember the precise date, with his wife. He had married a Russian ballerina and they visited Russia, and he wrote a very interesting article that is really worth reading. He was totally unimpressed by the economic changes that were going, you know, and he gave them almost no chance, chance of success. But at the same time, he made the point that they were, what he had noticed in Russia was a, a religion, not, not an economic model, no? And, uh, and he made also the point that the religion sometimes win over over non-religious thing, and he's comparing uh, Russia with the United States at that point, mentioned specifically the United States, and he said the way the, the United States is going clearly, well, the future will not be better than, than the past. Obviously, a few years later, the Great Depression came. The Great Depression lowered GDP by 45% in three years, you know, and brought the unemployment rate to 25%. 
So, the, you know, to conclude, I don't want to, to spend more time because I had other things, but I don't, I don't want to take more time than allowed. No, the, clearly, the, the Bolshevik Revolution had some impact on a few people, but it's very, from my reading at least, I'm very skeptical that the impact was significant or even that it was positive, you know. By the time that the, the, the Stalin uh, trial came, clearly whatever fascination there was had disappeared. And by the way, much of the growth of public spending came after Second World, World, World War and not after the, the Bolshevik Revolution. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Vito. And uh, uh, thank and, and how interesting that you should uh, you should you should stop on the on Great Depression because, of course, uh, the next speaker is Amity Schles, uh, who is um, the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Forgotten Man: A New History of the Great Depression, uh, The Forgotten Man graphic, a full-length uh, illustrated version of the same book. Uh, Coolidge, a full-length biography of the 30th president uh, of the United States, and Greedy Hand, How Taxes Drive Americans Crazy. Um, Ms. Schleis uh, chairs the board of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, a national foundation based in the birthplace of President Coolidge. The foundation's goal is to share Coolidge with Americans by hosting high school debates uh, and events uh, at the Coolidge site and through newer media. She's especially interested in education. She's the winner of the Hayek Prize uh, and also a co-winner of the Frederick Bastiat Prize in 2002. Over the years, she has served on the Council of Foreign Relations as a uh, senior uh, fellow in economic history and is associated with the Manhattan Institute. Welcome, please welcome uh, Amity Schleis. I'll, I'll tell you. Oh, okay, but I'd like to okay. see it too. But there we go. There we go. Good morning. Can you hear me? Uh, I actually have a PowerPoint. I'm going to try and keep to my time, though, to give Andre Ilarionov uh, plenty of space. Uh, and I was very glad to hear Professor Tanzi too. And I want to thank Ian Vasquez and Marion Tupi for for this really cool topic which drew me down here. For the sake of fun, I'll just tell you right now, I'm going to take a different position from Dr. Tanzi, and I'm going to contend in my argument that the Bolshevik Revolution had an effect on United States government, and most specifically on its size. As you, um, so let, here are my conclusions. I actually made bullet points. Uh, I descended to PowerPoint. Um, Yes, communism from Bolshevism influenced American government growth. European social democracy, as Dr. Vito says, influenced US government growth more. But maybe European social democracy is a reaction to the Bolshevik revolution. I, I see that link. Um, I want to mention a couple other things. Uh, most American progressives in the history who were doing the expanding of government were not traitors. Uh, that's my position. They were just fools, which is different. They were the useful idiots inspired by Moscow or uh, overly romantic about social democracy. Two additional points just want to note. 
until World War II, about intellectual influence of Russia mattered more than Moscow's direct influence because Moscow was puny, right? So it was more the idea of Russia and what it was doing, the first big revolutionary communist state, the, then the actual government itself, it, usually the government was a mendicant. Um, and then after World War II, Moscow's direct influence mattered as well because Moscow was a world power. Because of a couple real spies, because of Moscow's military threat, because of the nature of the Cold War where we competed not only on the war front, the, um, the military front, but also on the domestic front. Okay, so when did we expand in the United States? And how does that relate to the Bolshevik Revolution? The first great expansion, I'll call it, uh, this is the government of great expanders, was 1933 to 1945. This is the government of the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt. And I just actually brought graphs for you. I'll look at them too. You can see what is very interesting to this institution, which is a federalist institution, is that before 1936, the states and towns were a larger presence in the US economy than Washington. Washington was like a pygmy. Except for during wars, Washington was a pygmy. In the Roosevelt administrations, federal spending increased, and federal spending outpaced the states and the towns. And that prevailed ever since. And that's a huge cultural shift for us. Um, receipts caught up, right? Receipts were a little later. And today, just real quickly so you can see, the darker red is Washington, who's bigger. So our children don't understand why states matter. That's the big issue that we have with instruction. Why should they matter? Now they're the pygmies. What influenced Americans um, in the New Deal, the 30s period I'm first addressing? Um, the pre-New Deals, which is also what Dr. Tanzi looked at. Of course, the Russian Revolution um, was, I believe, it was very inspirational to many Americans, particularly lonely economists on the left, who were marginal, to use his word, in the 20s. They might even not get a job because they were too far left. I don't know if you've ever heard of Scott Nearing, who was at Penn. And there's an economist who was influential in the New Deal called Rex Tugwell, I'll get to. He could barely sort of get a job at Columbia because he was just too <laughs> left wing for the professoriate. The, the senior economists, but they existed, these younger progressive economists, and they were deeply inspired. What got ignored of the revolution was, for example, the Ukrainian famine. So it was like a selective admiration or selective look with admiration at Russia. The social democracies of Europe were also inspiring Americans before the 30s. Um, Sozialversicherung is very important, social insurance of Bismarck, as Vito mentioned. Um, and there are also a few English characters, Lloyd George um, in the UK. Uh, national insurance, we didn't have that. Britain had it before us. Ramsey MacDonald. Um, Bevan, the labor leader, not the party leader so much as the union labor leader. That, a book like that very inspired, and these people in turn were inspired, of course, by revolution everywhere, especially in Russia. One thing I treat in uh, Forgotten Man book, there's a whole chapter on it, is a particular Russia trip. Um, maybe Arthur Schlesinger alludes to it, because I trace the participants of this Russia junket, which was a fun junket, 
through the New Deal. What did they do? This is Rex, and I, I, I took their pictures in the cartoon book because it was fun. Um, Rex Tugwell is a very, was a very good-looking young professor who was too left-wing for the taste of older professors. He was on this trip. Remember, people didn't go to Russia so much in the 20s. Even union people, the union leader disapproved. So these are the the fringe. This is the uh, the fringe. Um, one was a wonderful economist, actually, and who later became a senator named Paul Douglas, and he figured in the writing of Social Securities from Illinois, um, and he was around right through the 60s, through, through my lifetime. And then there was a kind of pickety, to use shorthand, that is an economist who had outsized importance, named Stuart Chase. And um, Stuart Chase wrote a book called The New Deal, pandering to Roosevelt and his campaign, even before President Roosevelt was elected in 1932, just well-timed. Chase had a book, the, um, the New Deal, and he came back from this trip in Russia and said, why should the Russians have all the fun? Why should, can you hear me? Why should the Russians have the, all the fun remaking the world? I want to remake the world, and I know there'll be a time when the US administration can, can salt down the entire economy in five hours in a meeting, uh, as if it were a fish. You know? um, these fellows, were they uh, working for Moscow? Mostly not. I have some pictures of it, excuse me, pictures of this trip, because I like it so much, and I think it has romantic importance. Um, that's Tugwell. Um, it was a Potemkin village trip. Everything was set up for the US economists, who would later be in the New Deal. Um, and they were very, very impressed. They got to see collective wheat. Um, that's Rex Tugwell thinking about the economy of scale, which is a principle very dear to economists' heart, particularly in that period. Um, one of the things that happened to the economists that changed them forever is they got awesome treatment. They got hours with Stalin. They got to meet with Trotsky, which they didn't expect and were really excited about. They were, it was complete red carpet, whereas in the United States in the 20s, they were still marginal. Um, I also wanted to show you some pictures of people uh, from that period who thought about the world and were not um, enamored of the Russian model. One was a former Russian, right? Alyssa Rosenbaum, who became Ayn Rand. Uh, that's how the artist drew her when she was young. And we also have a Trotsky here who was deeply inspiring to American intellectuals. I have a picture of Stalin. There's Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and I'll move ahead. Anyhow, but between England, social democracy, Germany, social democracy, and Russia, everyone was very excited on the left about trying all these ideas out. That's Francis Perkins, who was particularly influenced by England. Um, and uh, now that the Great Depression presented the opportunity, uh, an emergency is something you can't waste. And the New Deal was an enormous expansion of government with an eye to Russia the whole time. It was the period also when we recognized Russia um, under President Roosevelt, which was a big deal because of Stalin and Le before Lenin's attitudes towards the churches. That was an important obstacle. I'm going to skip World War II as a growth factor to government, but I think you can argue that world, the Bolshevik Revolution had something to do with World War II. If there are any Germans here, um, I, you know, the, in my, uh, the German part of my education, um, the Nazism was evil, but it was also a reaction to the Soviet Union, right? 
um, it was sort of, the World War II was sort of a choice. Who do you hate more, the communists or the Nazis? And everyone picked and chose Herbert Hoover hated the communists more from bitter experience in Russia. Roosevelt hated the Germans more for whatever reason. He had a bad time there when he went as a child. But that was you know, a, a significant choice that could be made. What happens after World War II? Um, I want to mention there were some spies for Russia. My friend Ben Steele and colleague at the council uh, wrote a book about Harry Dexter White, who was um, very influential in the Treasury and at Bretton Woods. Um, I don't think there, you know, if you ask Harvey Kler, the great expert on spies, he counts about 500. I don't think the spies were very influential, um, except for maybe Harry Dexter White. Um, but Moscow influenced US spending because of the Cold War. We were in a, that, that's Harry Dexter White. And we could have a whole lecture, or someone could do it. I would love to learn about it. I believe Harry Dexter White, who was a spy, was in part responsible, of course, for the Bretton Woods Agreement, and therefore in part responsible for inflation in our culture and moving away from the gold standard. Um, anyway, the, influ the first influence of the Cold War with communist Russia, and Russia wouldn't be communist without the Bolshevik Revolution, was a rise in spending to pursue, to prosecute containment, and to match the Soviet Union. And here's defense spending as a share of GDP. You can just see it went down and down, and it really goes down um, in 1989, which we consider the end of the Cold War. It was, I, I often point out to kids, it was a lot higher than it is today, defense spending. So that was a real story. Um, here's another chart that includes World War II, and you see that huge bump when it got, our spending got to about, government spending got to about 37% of GDP, but you see, once we made up our mind we were in the Cold War, we spent a lot through the 1950s. And then there was also, I spelled the word competition wrong, forgive me, there was also domestic competition. And this is an image which is familiar to some but may not be familiar to others of Richard Nixon before he was president talking with Khrushchev, and they were at a fair showing, demonstrating, um, the progress of the US in the very um, consumer way, right? The kitchen, it's a model kitchen, 1959 version. We were worried, and it's kind of interesting to remember that we actually thought that Russia might beat us in terms of standard of living. I was raised to think East Germany was just as good as West Germany. I heard that in college all the time. East Germany, you know, the standard of living, and that they could move ahead, and the nominal um, the, what was on paper, the growth rates of the Soviet Union, looked better than our growth rates sometimes, right? So there were whole auditoria and whole libraries full of books saying the Soviet threat, the growth threat. Um, I'm gonna, um, so that's the second influence. We wanted to match Russia and be sure we were as good a place, as good a place as we contended. We weren't spending to be communist, we were spending to be Russia. Um, the expanders in the second inflection point are what I'm currently writing the history of the Great Society to go with Forgotten Man and Coolidge. So hopefully I will do for the 60s what I did for the 30s and the 20s with Coolidge. Um, it's a true sequel. Anyway, so I could use some advice from anyone in the room. The second big spending inflection point is the Great Society um, started 
a bit by Kennedy, really owned by LBJ, Johnson. And you want to ask what influenced them? Definitely Willy Brandt um, of Germany. And Willy Brandt was a social democrat who, you know, who went nose to nose with communism in East Berlin. He certainly wasn't a communist, but he was a social democratic spender. And he explained to our unions, for example, Walter Ruther of the UAW, if you make a strong social democracy, you will be stronger and your workers won't go communist, right? That was the argument. Um, another, you know, we had domestic influences. I'm looking in the Great Society book at Michael Harrington, who is sort of the hillbilly elegy author of the early 60s. That is, he wrote a book about Appalachian poverty and other poverty called The Other America, um, and that sees the spirits, the, you know, it captured the enthusiasm and it got the backing, this notion of, of President Johnson, who was very concerned, a lot of this is pride, that we would look bad if we had poverty in the United States. It's not seemly we're a superpower, we have to look perfect. Um, so Johnson didn't say, I want a good society, though it was recommended to him by his canny advisors that he would have a good society. He said, I'm going to have a great society. And implicit in that, great, 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 another era is greater than Russia's, right? It very, very much clear. I'm not going to go through the space race, but it's only the most obvious emblem of this. So we made egregious promises which played out over decades. The effect wasn't all there right away. We're going to have, um, we're going to rebuild the entire United States. We're going to create new concepts of cooperation, kind of, uh, I don't know, syndicalist kibbutz mixtures, right? Um, we, we are not interested in local authority. We're centralizing. Um, in the book, I treat Tom Hayden, uh, the one who married Jane Fonda, the one who started the SDS or was one of the founders, the radical group. Um, he had a vision um, that was definitely influenced by communism. He went to North Vietnam very early. Um, then you have people who are, are not so embarrassing, but still very much influenced by social democracy, such as the leader of the war on poverty, Sergeant Shriver. So kind of indirect influences. We had the war in Vietnam, right? Um, if the US is wrong in the war in Vietnam, which was the sentiment, well, maybe communism is right. And in the 60s, in the 50s, everyone was so scared about McCarthy, and so uh, our eyeballs were burned by what happened in Hungary. And we saw communism up so close that, that people didn't dare say communism might be conceivable. By the 60s, you had the younger generation, and they found it um, tacky to be a fiery McCarthyite. They said, let's talk about everything. I'm going to be open, right? I'm going to be open. So you begin to hear about the merits of communism, and you see a revival of interest on the part of the intellectuals in the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, there's Brandt. Um, this is Walter Ruther. I really like him, by the way, and I could use um, advice on him because he's turning out to be a major character in my book. Um, uh, he believed in extreme spending, and he wanted to make his own great society before he wanted to outdo Johnson. Johnson was competing with the Kennedys, Ruther, and the Soviet Union. Um, you can see the spending here. You, the the arrows on top it goes up right uh, that's the six that's the seventies that's because a lot of the projects that became law in the sixties only took effect directly and indirectly in the seventies 
you know, the entitlement started out weenie. Nobody thought Medicare or Medicaid would be that big. But by the 70s, 80s, 90s, we were beginning to see what an expansion they represented. I'm going to conclude and give seven minutes to Andre um, because I, I can't wait to hear what he says. But my conclusion is definitely Bolshevism. The idea made our government bigger. Um, European social democracy as an alternate to Bolshevism also influenced our growth. Very inspiring. Um, most, I want to say it again, most American progressives weren't traitors. They were, they didn't report to Moscow. They just kind of liked European ideas, especially Russian ones. Um, and um, until World War II, this was an idea more. Um, by the way, I should mention that Paul Douglas, to, to follow my train through about the New Deal, Paul Douglas, the senator I mentioned, for example, was very important in social security, which is the basis of our social welfare state. So my little weird intellectuals ended up having influence um, in the New Deal. Um, but that was intellectual. And then after World War II, Moscow's direct influence mattered too mainly because of the military challenge that Russia represented. So I'm going to stop um, and, right, and give some time to my friends. Thank you very much, Amity. Um, no worries about timing. We are just going to go over into uh, the Q&A um, session after, after Andre uh, uh, finishes. Andrei Ilarionov is our last speaker. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Between 2000 and 2005, he was the chief economic advisor of the Russian President Vladimir Putin. Ilarionov also served as the president's personal representative to the G8. Uh, he's one of Russia's most forceful and articulate advocates of an open society and democratic capitalism. From 93 to 94, Ilarionov served as chief economic advisor to the prime minister of Russian Federation, Viktor Chernomirgin. Uh, he resigned in February 94 to protest uh, against changes uh, in the government's economic policy. He, also in 94, he founded the Institute of Economic Analysis. He has co-authored several economic programs for the Russian government and has written three books and more than 300 articles on Russian economic and social policies. He has received his PhD from St. Petersburg University in 1987. With that, over to you, Andre. Um, uh, good morning. Um, uh, first of all, I, I have to say that it's a real pleasure to have uh, both Vita Tamsa and Amity Schleis here at this panel. Uh, my old, uh, my friends for a long time. Uh, so, and to, uh, I enormously enjoyed the presentation of both Vita and Amity. Uh, my role, as I see it, to just to uh, move further to more uh, uh, quantitative uh, approach uh, from the qualitative that Vito has demonstrated and also Amity talk both uh, in qualitative and quantitative. Uh, I will speak mostly about numbers uh, that I put in some charts so that it would be easy to do uh, some kind of to see them. Um, and as you can see, I used a uh, slightly different word, not Bolshevik, not Bolshevism, but communism. Uh, on purpose, uh, because Bolshevism uh, sounds a little bit alien to uh, kind of around the world, because Bolshevism looks like a very special, unique event in some remote country, nobody uh, knows where, and so on, but just 
communism is much closer to the hearts around the world. And especially if I would hear socialism or Marxism, it would be even better. So, but essentially when I'm talking about communism, I have in mind uh, these uh, communist slash socialist slash Marxist uh, leftist ideas, especially on the, uh, on the role of the government um, in today's world. So that is why uh, communism, I think, is much more internationally uh, appropriate uh, in this regard. And uh, my last comments before we'll uh, go through the charts um, is just to stress at least four channels that communism had impact on size of government around the world. Actually, all of them have been mentioned already by both uh, Vito and Amity. I would just to repeat them. The first one is the impact of ideas of Marxist ideas, of socialist ideas, of uh, communist ideas. And we have seen that the beginning of this impact, even at the end of the 19th century, it continued through uh, kind of 100 years, but nevertheless, ideas. Second, demonstration effect. Uh, since appearance of the Soviet Union after the Communist Revolution in 1917, uh, it became visible that it's not only ideas or strange ideas or some kind of wild ideas, but it is real. It's reality. It's practical. And even some people can visit and see uh, some kind of publication that's, that cannot die next day, as many people have predicted um, uh, right after, uh, after the Communist Revolution. Third, it's a direct impact, a direct influence of some kind of agents or spies or propaganda people around the world, and it cannot be excluded as well. And the fourth, which is, has been stressed several times by Emmett, is a competition. It is spending competition, a competition in military spending and a competition in social uh, area, which played incredibly important role, um, especially after the Second World War. Uh, having said that, uh, just let's move uh, through uh, uh, several of these charts. So I'm kind of, uh, this picture shows this I'm kind of century of government expansion. It's kind of the 20th century, starting from 1900 to year 2000. It's very clear the GDP per capita over this century, over the world, for the whole world, increased five times. But government expenditure per capita, everything is a uh, constant uh, US dollars and PPP, so just comparable, increased 17 times. So that is why it's a fact of life that the government grew much faster, not only in the United States, not only in the UK, not only in the Soviet Union or Russia, around the world. So that's, that's very important. And uh, regardless uh, kind of uh, how we would like, whether we like it or not, we need to understand uh, the reasons why that happened. Now we uh, move to the kind of chief culprit uh, of some of these events, the uh, government expenditure as a share of GDP in the Russian Empire, USSR, and Russia over more than a century. Probably this is the first time that I demonstrated this chart publicly. So that is why you can see it's quite, quite unusual, if, even for those who are familiar with the similar charts for the United States or for Europe or others. It's a very, very unusual with a very substantial jumps and falls and so on. Nevertheless, you can see that uh, uh, here, uh, doesn't work. Okay, so anyway, so you can see that the uh, the most dramatic increase in the size of government happened to be in 1930s. 
kind of, and um, uh, even before the uh, Second World War in the 1930s during this uh, Holodomor, starvation in Ukraine and other places uh, in the Soviet Union, the share of uh, government in uh, Russian GDP in, uh, uh, increased up to 60%, even, even slightly higher. So, um, but, uh, okay, we, we can discuss a lot about uh, Russian uh, numbers, but, okay, this is, uh, chart is much more familiar for many because it's the size of government as a share of GDP in the United States. Uh, the picture is very clear. So we have uh, uh, bumps with, uh, associated with wars, the kind of the uh, American-British War in 1812, after that Civil War, First World War, Second World War. There is also can be uh, identified increase during the Korean War or Vietnamese War. And the last one is a kind of Obama effect in the year 2009 with a substantial increase uh, in spending. So nevertheless, we can see that uh, over the period, uh, over, the, over these uh, more than two centuries, the share of GDP increased substantially. And the most important jumps, not only some kind of gradual increase as we have seen in the 19th century and the, even at the beginning of the 20th century before the First World War, happened to be in 1930s. And Amity was talking about this. And after that, during this period of the so-called Great Society in the 50s and 60s, uh, after the Second World War. Uh, but also, I would probably track your attention, because we, we will discuss it a little bit later, that after some particular period of time, we probably do not see uh, such a trend to increase uh, size of government over the last uh, couple of decades, or maybe three decades, as we have seen before. And we, we, we can talk about this. A very similar picture we can see um, in many other countries, like here in the United Kingdom, very similar to the United States, with uh, huge jumps uh, for associated with two world wars. Uh, also, substantial increase in the 50s and 60s. And after that, more or less, with fluctuations, but the trend looks like is more or less uh, neutral, horizontal. France, uh, very substantial increase, even with just try to ignore these jumps for both worlds, because uh, both world wars, because it's understandable that during wars, uh, government increased their spending. If we look into the so-called peaceful period, that's a substantial increase in uh, government spending as a share of GDP in the 50s and 60s and 70s. That, to some extent, continues, at least in France, probably even uh, today. So even more pronounced, it is in Sweden, because uh, impact of uh, both wars was not so pronounced as in the uh, United States, United Kingdom, or Germany, or France, uh, that participated during the war. Uh, but uh, increase uh, of uh, government spending uh, during the peaceful time is much more pronounced. And Sweden uh, reached the highest level among uh, developed nations, aside of Israel, during the so-called uh, peaceful time, up to 70% um, at the end of uh, 80s, 90, uh, 90s. All right. Um, okay. It will put together all developed countries. Uh, so just we will have we would arrive to this particular picture. Okay. So just uh, for almost two centuries. Once again, it will put aside for the moment uh, these two big jumps associated with two world wars we can see substantial increase in uh, size of government in the 1920s and 1930s. It's a kind of uh, quanti uh, qualitative uh, increase over the period, uh, over the level that we have seen during the uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And the next wave, next jump in the uh, post-Second World War uh, period. And it's once again, 
please pay attention to the fact that since approximately 1980s, we do not see such a uh, consistent, such a persistent increase in size of government. We have substantial fluctuations, but not something that we have seen uh, uh, immediately after the uh, Second World War. Here, size of government uh, in developing countries also as a uh, share of GDP. Very similar picture, so that we have a shorter period here because we don't have data for developing countries uh, uh, as we have for developed uh, nations. Once again, substantial uh, increase in size of government until roughly 81, 82, and after that, not only stabilization of this uh, level, but even a little bit falling uh, compared to the peak that we, uh, we can see happened in uh, 1982. Why? We try to answer this uh, question. And the last group, big countries, the size of government in communist countries. Uh, certainly, uh, I put here from 1924, not all of them were communist countries that time, uh, but just to have, your, to have uh, understanding how much size of government increased in such countries like uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, when they moved from non-communist status to communist status, as you can see. It's a substantial increase, but once again, after some period in 70s and 80s, it started to fall, and it is much lower today. But uh, using this opportunity, because we will not come uh, back uh, to this slide, please pay attention that the first attempt to reduce size of government in communist countries happened to be in 67, as you can see, the first attempt. It was uh, short-lived for three, four years, from 66, 67 to 70, and after that it was reversed, uh, we'll talk about this uh, a bit later. So now you can see on this chart uh, size of government in the world and the three group of countries putting together. You see the, the red one are communist countries, uh, the green uh, color developed, uh, some kind of, what is this, like an orange uh, developing countries, and the blue one is a, uh, all world. So more or less uh, similar, certainly at different levels. Uh, one substantial, uh, mm, uh, very special feature is definitely communist countries that had much higher uh, size of government for the level of development of those countries. And that uh, size of government has been reduced substantially over the last three decades or so. Okay, <clears throat> uh, let's look into this size of government in the world for uh, all nations, certainly it's not all nations, because not for all nations we have uh, data for this period of time. It's approximately 70 countries, uh, but that's approximately maybe 80% of the world GDP uh, today. So once again, uh, we can see uh, these two bumps uh, associated with military spending. Increase uh, in size of government uh, from 1950 probably until uh, 80, early 80s, and after that more or less uh, stabilization uh, of this level. How can we explain it? Let's take a closer look uh, for the size of government in the world in the last 66 years. We can see very clear peak that has been achieved in 1982-83 after which uh, size of government did not increase and more or less stabilized, and even uh, some kind of uh, fell down a little bit. So how can we explain that very 
uh, unusual from the point of view of a traditional approach, and let's say from the point of Wagner's law that uh, Vito was uh, talking about, so just because it goes not only against this theoretical kind of prediction, but also the practical experience of the previous century, or even more than century. So my explanation that I'm giving this is a so-called Thatcher-Reagan revolution. Uh, because the Thatcher government in the United Kingdom and the Reagan uh, uh, administration in the United States, has not only, uh, first of all, they have changed uh, policies, economic policy, and they uh, stopped to increase the government spending as a ratio of GDP, but also they produce very important ideological impact, not only uh, on uh, Anglo-Saxon societies, but around the world. And that impact has been um, absorbed, and it led to changes in economic policies around the world. So that is why uh, we uh, also need to remember not only about the uh, impact of communism, communist ideas, but also those who resist to communism. And certainly, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, did play incredibly important role in reversing those trends. Okay, but to be correct, and uh, as you can see, this is uh, the peak is 1983, just in the, in the practical data, in the real data. But to be uh, absolutely correct, we need to say that some radical changes have happened in some particular countries even before Thatcher and Reagan. Here this uh, chart for Poland. The peak uh, in the size of government uh, in Poland happened in 81. So two years before that it became felt in uh, United Kingdom, United States, and the rest of the world. So that is why it is important that somebody was before. If we look here, China, the great reforms in China started in 1978 officially, but in 79 it was the last year of increasing uh, size of government, and after that it's radical, dramatic uh, decline in size of government over a couple of decades. So that is why it happened 79, so once again, a couple of years before Thatcher-Reagan revolution. And one more country that started this reverse even early, Chile, 73, here the peak and after that. So that is why, um, having remembered about the impact of Thatcher-Reagan, we definitely need to remember about the predecessors of that pivotal change in the uh, trends uh, in the size of government. Uh, Polish, Chinese, and Chilean experience that really helped to change the atmosphere of discussion and debate around the world. And now let's move uh, from the kind of demonstration to more qualitative measurement, whether we can uh, quantify uh, this impact um, uh, of both communism and resistance to communism uh, with data for a size of government. Here, as you can see, the first, uh, the first column the, uh, shows uh, changes in size of government in developed countries, percentage points of GDP per decade. So for most of uh, 19th century, beginning of uh, 20th century, there was impact, uh, some impact here, but it was very, very uh, small. Yes, size of government was increasing. This is the Wagner law that, that Wagner based his calculations and his statements based on this uh, experience. But looks how different, radically different uh, situation became in the 20s and 30s when Soviet Union already started to to exist and was visible for everybody. That was a uh, uh, qualitative jump, 
because it was almost uh, six percentage points of GDP per decade increase, um, uh, increase in size of government. It became even more, uh, even stronger um, after the Second World War between 51 and 83, as you can see. And now, uh, since 83, it became negative. Very modest, nevertheless, uh, uh, negative, uh, negative changes in size of governments. So kind of, it's a little bit reverse um, in these uh, secular trends. So in developing countries, picture is very similar. As you can see in the 20s, and especially after the uh, Second World War, it was enormous increase in size of government. In the last, uh, whatever, 35 years, uh, there is some increase, very, very, very modest, uh, but it is definitely not what we have seen uh, in the previous, whatever, 60, uh, 60 years. And the uh, kind of last chart here is the changes in size uh, of government in communist countries. And here's very interesting. The first period between 1950 and 66, it's a very traditional communist centrally planned, or even I would say com uh, Stalinist economies with an increase in uh, size of government. The first attempt to reverse this trend happened in 66, 67 in such countries like Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. They tried to not to be so Stalinized and they kind of tried to introduce some elements very, very limited, but some elements of markets or some kind of uh, not fully state regulations or state uh, behavior for, for companies. It was short-lived because in 1970s, it was a, uh, pronounced the so-called Brezhnev doctrine, and Brezhnev used uh, not only uh, kind of power of ideas, but power of direct influence, as it was in Czechoslovakia and some other places, to reverse those trends. As you can see, from 1970s to 75, it's a re-standardization in communist countries from the point of view of economic policies. Uh, from uh, mid-70s until end of 80s, uh, there is a, uh, once again a reversal of these trends, kind of very slow, very gradual, very mild economic reform started in some uh, communist countries. And from 88 until the year 2000, very substantial cha uh, changes, kind of it's a dismantling of uh, communist economies. Okay, and in the last 16 years, it's a more or less uh, stable level. So um, in conclusion, I would say that we definitely see very substantial, enormous impact of communism, once again, through four channels, ideas, um, demonstration effect, direct impact, and competition with uh, communist countries as um, impact on uh, size of government around the world. But there is not only impact of communism on size of government, there is also impact of resistance to communism. And we have seen that over the last three decades or so, uh, some brave people around the world, not only here in the Anglo-Saxon world, but in some other countries, did change this situation. And after 60 years of seemingly unstoppable march of communism around the world in economic policies, we have a reverse that we're enjoying over the last 35 years. Thanks. Thank you very much, Andre. We have a few minutes left for Q&A, so um, please wait until the mic gets to you, and then if you would please uh, tell us who you are, who you work for, uh, if you have an affiliation, and please make those questions as short as possible so that we can get through as many of them as we can. Uh, the, the gentleman here. 
and then we'll get to you. Dad Lehman, I'm a writer. I wonder if we uh, haven't left out the most important element, which is the failures of the, the government response to the failures of the capital system, the uh, constant uh, panics and recessions in which the government reacts through programs with uh, fiscal and monetary policies. Uh, and matter of fact, in the Great Depression, I'm maybe wrong, correct me if I am, I believe that Hoover concentrated too much on balancing the budget and the Federal Reserve uh, raised the interest rates which stopped monetary uh, expansion. So, uh, perfect person to answer it for you. So the, thank you for the question. The question is, did um, all this happen because capitalism's flaws were revealed, especially in the 20s and 30s? It's not totally clear that the economy was, the world economy of the developed nations was worse um, under purer capitalism, which we would define as the capitalism of the gold standard. Um, I'm not prepared for this question, but I believe the Bank of England has, is that right? Is there anyone in the room who knows that? Gold standard sh study that shows stronger growth under the gold standard than after. So recall that panics were short and they weren't remembered before the Great Depression. Then we did shift in policy, and I, um, contrary to you, would group Hoover with Roosevelt. He did push for expansion. He did exhort business um, and beat it up. Um, he did spend. Uh, maybe that round prolonged the Great Depression. That's the hypothesis of Forgotten Man. Um, there's particularly evidence that I want to mention um, that's come out since Forgotten Man was published, which is uh, regarding the labor price. Um, as everyone knows, the New Deal pushed the labor price up, both directly through the Wagner Act and also through all the other laws. Um, the unions today are little pussycats neutered compared to the tigers that unions were in the United States in the 30s. And if you have a look at charts, you'll see something a, a bit creepy. The un Great Depression is known as unemployment, right? Unempl terrible unemployment, 15%, long time, 10 years, 10%. You'll see that the wage for over the course of the century, and the per scholar who does this is Leo Hanyan, was above trend in the 30s. That's due to the unions. It was even higher than John L. Lewis knew because of deflation, right? You ask for $2, it's really worth $2.50. By the time uh, you pay it out, it's kind of a version of the Tansy effect. So, uh, so I, um, uh, the other scholar is Harold Cole. So two um, factors I would just say, one is the incredible high price of labor. It was um, it deterred reemployment and made the depression great. And I would also mention the uncertainty of Roosevelt's experimentation. Gentlemen, two Never heard that. Okay, you, sir. Thank you, uh, Carl Galvin, endofthefed.info. Uh, question: It seems like not so much driven by Bolshevism, but the expansion of the federal government and yeah, the massive growth of corporations and the funneling of credit into the economy through the government you know, in, in the expansion of corporations is traceable to the creation of the Fed and the Federal Reserve and the IRS. 1913, there was one chart, uh, Mr. 
uh, Professor Ilyarnov, you showed that 1913 seems like when the, the chart just begins to accelerate. Uh, and the question, do we really have uh, capitalism versus you know, Mussolini, I think it is said that fascism is really the alliance of the state and corporate interests. And has it been the uh, expansion of corporatism that uh, is most evident? Also, who um, financed the Bolshevik Revolution? Anyone who wants to take it? I I just want to qualify a little bit this impression that the theory brought about this tremendous change. You know, let me give you some data which come come from the U.S. government. You know, in 1932, outlays for the federal government was about seven percent of GDP. 1932, we were still before Roosevelt era. In 1940 was 9.8. So that's been a very marginal increase. And if you realize that also GDP had, had fallen dramatically in those years, so that the, the real spending was, uh, you know, it goes back to my point that the, the increase came with the war. You know, once you get to the war, then we go from uh, the this, this expenditure for defense went to 43% by 1944-45. And uh, so we have to be careful. Also, the data that André uh, men- mentioned, I don't know how you measure the, the size of government in an economy like the can- economy of Czechoslovakia, that 98% was public. The, public se- the private sector was 2% of GDP. How do you measure the size of the government? I don't know. The main difference was the ownership of the factors of production. You know, in many of those countries, really the government stepped in and, and nationalized all the enterprises. So we are talking about a different, totally different model. We're not talking about a model where the private sector produces lots of things and the government encroaches with some taxes and so forth. So we have to, to really be precise about what we are talking about, you know. Okay. Um, yes. Yes, hello. My name is Ali Oliva. Uh, I'm a U.S. citizen, uh, Cuban political refugee, anti-communist. Um, great discussion. And quick question. What work has, two quick questions. What work has been done on the role of government bureaucracies and pensions? As um, Dr. Tanzi mentioned, as government spending grew, so did the bureaucracy, so did people whose livelihood depended on um, being government bureaucrats and the pensions associated with that. We see what's happening in the state of Illinois, for example, now with pensions. And the other question is, any work done on Daniel Kahneman um, and his, uh, his work in, in behavioral economics? Uh, he talks about in his latest book about how a lot of our thoughts regarding uh, politics and economic systems are formed at an early age. So really, most people are kind of set on one side of the discussion or another by the time they become adults and they're kind of just finding things to reinforce their their beliefs. So anyway, any any work done on any of those two topics would be of interest to me. I can add, I don't know. I'll just speak to the bureaucracy question. I, I think the most interesting book lately has been Philip Hamburger, who contends that the large, um, active, policy-making bureaucratic state is even unconstitutional, that there's 
too much power being ceded to bureaucrats. So you look at it from the legal point of view. Um, it's wonderful to try and quantify regulatory cost. It's difficult. Yeah, I can, I can add something. You, you know, some of the, on the bureaucracy, some of the most interesting work, in fact, came from the president of the Cato Institute from a previous, uh, Niskanen. You know, he be, was Niskanen. Well, Niskanen. Yeah, he, he became famous for his work on the growth of bureaucracy, how bureaucrats push for a larger budget. And this is somewhat consistent with some of the ideas which are in my forthcoming book that, you know, I, I, I in one, in this book, also the, this book that I wrote a few years ago with Cambridge, Government versus Market, I suggest a, a, what I call a law of growing public spending, that a program is introduced to solve a problem and becomes very well defined and relatively small, but then there are pressures from inside and from outside to broaden the program. And there are a lot of examples of programs that became very limited and then over time become larger and larger, more complex, and the government loses control of, over them. So what you anticipate. So that, that on, uh, on uh, bureaucracy, not naturally there is the other side of the bureaucracy, which is the side that uh, Wagner, no, Weber, Max Weber, wrote about, you know, the, the ideal bureaucrat who is totally honest, totally uh, wise, and, uh, you know, just promotes the best interest of the public. Maybe this kind of bureaucrat does not exist anymore. I don't know. Yes, sir. My name is Alexis Sapchenko. I have no affiliation, and my question is to Mr. Larionov, uh, which is which goes back to the whole topic. Uh, I've noticed on your charts, specifically on the United States, France, and United Kingdom, that after the collapse of communism, the government started to grow stronger, bigger, and uh, this brings me a question, which. Uh, popular Russian journalist Yulia Latina uh, mentioned several times that communism helped to keep the West, West lean, lean and mean. And once the threat of communism was removed, the government bureaucracy in the West felt free to start to, with the, let's say, to grow. Thank you. No, uh, there is no uh, confirmation, there is no support for this uh, statement. Uh, as you have seen in the charts, and we can show once again them, uh, the real pivotal uh, moment has happened around 82, 83 in the United Kingdom, United States, and for the whole developed countries. Certainly for whole developed countries, it would be 83. Uh, certainly uh, the uh, timeline for each country would be different. For example, uh, in Sweden, uh, size of government grew up to probably 92, 93. But after that, with a change of government and change, uh, changes in economic policies, it started to, it, it was contracted by about 20 percentage points of GDP. Uh, pretty impressive. Very substantial decline in size of government happened in Ireland, also from some kind of 55% to 33% of GDP. So it just, in different developed countries, it happened certainly um, according to individual schedule. Um, certainly depending on the uh, particular governments, particular political parties uh, that happen to be at the top uh, of the power. But nevertheless, as we have seen from 83 until year 2016, 
overall in developed countries, the size of GAM did not increase, but slightly uh, fell by probably two or three percentage points of GDP uh, for that period of time. So it's, once again, it is important to mention that the, this is a crucial moment happened not in 91, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, not in 1990 or just around this time when the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, it happened before as a result of the impact of ideas, of new ideas, and these ideas it seems to be, um, and the kind of people who did it, certainly the, the Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Chicago Boys in Chile, uh, Chinese economic reform, and some kind of different attempts to implement market reforms in the uh, former communist countries. But using this opportunity, I would mention a couple of uh, points that have been uh, discussed early on. So um, it's very important to keep in mind that when we are measuring some of government, we're measuring not only size of federal government, like in the United States or in Russia or in some other places, but the size of the general government. General government includes federal government, state governments, local governments, of budget funds, of social funds, and so on. So that is why even this is different names, it's the same government, and the decisions uh, are taken not according to whatever, maximize profits or to sell goods and services to the market, but according to those bureaucrats that have been mentioned. So that is why the size of the general government is much larger than the size of the federal government. For example, in the United States, um, I uh, kind of can recall in the... Um, uh, in the 1920s, uh, the size of the general government in the United States was about 10, 11 percent. Well, three and seven. Ten. Uh, uh, three, three federal. No, it's federal. No, no, I'm just general government. I'm, I'm talking about general government. General government, including once again, federal plus state plus local plus all these uh, budget funds. About 10, 11% of GDP for 20s, and about 20% of GDP in the second part of the 30s, after, after Great Depression, after uh, Roosevelt policy and so on. So that is why, within a very short period of time, size of general government in the United States doubled. And from, if I'm not mistaken, from 35 until 1940, before the war, Voice a very important uh, factor, but it's a separate one. Uh, So-called in peaceful in peace time, so the size of general government in the United States doubled uh, in the 1930s compared to 1920s. And as for the measurement of the size of government in communist countries, it's a very tricky uh, issue. It's a very interesting issue. But nevertheless, uh, we need to uh, differentiate, at least kind of uh, most people who are working with the communist countries trying to do it, between decisions that are being made at the level of the government, uh, whatever, minister of finance or central committee of pol or politburo or whatever, and the decisions that have been taken uh, by uh, whatever, directors of enterprises, uh, even they were kind of in the state ownership, no doubt. And if we look into the data for budget, once again, for the general government of these communist countries, uh, we can see that the general government spent, depending on the country, 50, 60, 70 percent of GDP, which is much higher than uh, countries with similar level of economic development, GDP per capita, let's say in Western Europe and some other places in the developing world. Uh, nevertheless, it was not 100 percent of GDP, with few exceptions. For example, Cuba, 
for some period of time spent around uh, 100% of GDP. North Korea is close to that. Um, uh, Czechoslovakia and GDR spent about 70, 60-70% for some particular years. But generally that was about 50-60%, which is once again, is which much higher than uh, countries with similar GDP per capita in Europe or in Latin America and some other places. Nevertheless, it was very rarely, it was uh, close to 100% of GDP. Can I I give uh, some data which might be interesting to some of the people here? Between, of some country that reduced spending, between 1992 and 2007 in this uh, 15-year period, uh, Norway reduced spending by about 15% of GDP, Australia reduced by 4.6%, Canada by about 15%, Ireland by about 11%, and Sweden, Sweden of all places, reduced public spending by 17%. So reduction is possible. And the remarkable thing that in all these cases, the country did better afterward, after the reduction of spending than before. All these countries were relatively successful in, in, in a low, uh, later year. But they were all spending, by, reducing by a level that were 50% or so. No. Thank you very much. If I may, well, just, uh, Marin, just one more point, because I think it's a very important role of ideas and a role of information that became available, can become available for our many policymakers around the world. And Vito did play a very important role because he was at the IMF, the head of the fiscal department, and uh, Vito's publications and articles and the books and statements did play a very important role because it was not only a position of some kind of interesting researcher in the remote university, but it was a, a position that has been taken by the head of the fiscal affairs department at the IMF. And that is why uh, policymakers around the world pay very close attention to what has been said by uh, FAD uh, at the IMF. So that is why there is also it's kind of demonstration of this uh, very important impact of these right ideas on policymaking process. Uh, that's all the time we have for. Please, all, everyone is uh, welcome to join us uh, for lunch uh, on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Thanks for coming. Thanks to our speakers. See you next time. Thank you.